16. We'll be in Acts 17 starting this morning uh, at verse 16 down through uh, the end of the chapter in verse 34. Listen to the word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, why does this babble? What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, uh, may we know what this is, what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might find their way towards Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring." Being then God's offspring, we should not think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has, given, he has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak to us from your word this morning, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts and our midst, and that Jesus Christ's name uh, would be proclaimed for for your honor uh, and your glory. We thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you that he has ascended into heaven and sits at your right hand, Father. We just ask that your word would comfort and encourage, would build up, would even correct us. Uh, where we need to hear it. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. I'm sure you've all heard the saying, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. That is true of, of so many things in history. We love to think that, that we are in a, in a place in time like never before. And, and it is true in many ways we have so many privileges. Uh, never before in, in human history have you been able to carry so much computer power in your pocket in a cell phone. Uh, you have more computer power in your pocket right now than they had when the Apollo landed on the moon, than they had in the Apollo landing capsule. I mean, that just, that just blows my mind when I think about it. These guys went to the moon on less computing power than you and I can carry around in our pockets. And so in many ways, things have changed. But in many other ways, things have, have stayed the same and are, are more alike than we can ever imagine. We love to think that because we've gone to the moon and other places, because we have such technology, we are some of the smartest people that have ever lived in human history. We may be smart in technology in ways that we have never been, but we can be just like people that have gone before us with the same pride, sometimes with the same petty anger, with the same things that divide us. That's true in our culture. That's true in the Christian church. Some of the same beliefs that we find rampant in our day, the same false religions, the same false notions about God are just as rampant in the ancient world. And so when we see Paul go into the Areopagus, yes, he's walking into a place where there are physical idols that he is confronting. Uh, Not many people that I know of uh, in our world today would say that they worship Zeus. Uh, or Apollo. And yet, we have the same sorts of false beliefs. Three things in our culture, I think, get mocked. And they're the same three things that we see in this passage today that Paul proclaims to the pagans. First, people today mock the idea of a sovereign God who controls all things. Even within so-called Christian circles, People that claim they believe in God, they will mock the idea that God is sovereign over all things. At least two or three times in the past year, I have seen a, a you know kerfluffle on the Internet. People debating back and forth on their blogs when some tragedy happens and someone tries to bring comfort that that God is still in control, that God is sovereign. These these tragedies were not outside of his his plans and purposes, even though he doesn't ordain evil. And, and people get in an uproar. God is not that sovereign. But God is sovereign over all things. And we see it in this passage. Second thing that we often see denied in our day and age is that man is made in the image of God. In today's world, we have rampant belief in evolution. And so there's a, a denial in, in man being made in the image of God. Even as you think about this 4th of July weekend and, and the Declaration of Independence and this idea that, that we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights. And that flows from this idea that we are made in the image of God. Even that idea of rights that can be recognized by the government, but the government doesn't grant them. It's falling on hard times in our day and age. And then lastly, the idea of a resurrection. People today tend not to believe in miracles. 
They tend to be very uh, materialistic. In other words, believing that all that exists is only the physical world. And physical world runs solely on the concept of some laws, some immutable principles that creation or the world is always governed by. And thus, miracles don't happen because a God that is beyond this world doesn't exist. I have friends from high school that are not believers and and invariably, when, when Easter comes around, someone cracks a joke about Jesus being a zombie. Their idea of a resurrection, someone coming out of the grave, is to, to mock it with the caricatures that you see in today's uh, zombie movies and science fiction. These very three things that are denied in our day and age were denied by the exact same people, or excuse me, were the exact same thing that the people that Paul confronts denies. And I think we should be encouraged by that. The more things change, the more things stay the same. The same message that Paul brought to the the Athenians is the same message that we need to bring. Some of the same things that Paul says in his day, we can say them almost the exact same way And know that we are going to confront almost the exact same problems. And so our point this morning is simply this. Be courageous in bringing the gospel to all people. I I don't know about you, but but I am not the kind of person that, that delights in just walking into a crowd of strangers and just starting to talk. I like to know the people a little bit. I like to be a little bit comfortable. It, it can be a, an act of courage to, to share the gospel with some people that you don't know, and particularly in this kind of public setting. And we need to have that kind of courage to be able to, to share the gospel. More importantly, a courage where we are not afraid, whether it's with people we know or people we don't know, where we're not afraid to plainly speak the truth. Just because people don't like the sovereignty of God, we can't back down from it. Just because people don't like the idea that man is made in the image of God, we can't back away from it. Even more, just because people find it very hard to believe in the idea of a resurrection does not mean we can soften it or couch it in in different terms or, or change what that word means. We undermine the gospel when we do that. So first this morning, don't be afraid to share the gospel with unbelievers who know nothing of Scripture. Sometimes when we encounter uh, unbelievers, sometimes you'll find some unbelievers that maybe they grew up in a church. Maybe they've been exposed to the Word of God. They, They at least know a little bit of Scripture. Maybe they're familiar with the Ten Commandments. And you have a, a starting point that you can start with. But more often, and especially in our day and age, as people come from less and less of a church background, the, the parents that, that you may have known that took their kids to church when they were young have now walked away from the church and are raising kids of their own who have never been in a church. And so the culture is moving further and further away from God. You know, Paul was not afraid to talk to these kinds of people. On the one hand, he could go into the synagogue and and talk with people who knew the Scriptures, 
On the other hand, here he is in, in a pagan city in the Areopagus where all of the pagan philosophers are, are gathering. And he's talking about God and he is not afraid to use biblical theology. He doesn't have to come up with a different message because he can bring the Word of God even to people that don't know the Word of God. So in Athens, Paul is waiting, but he is actively proclaiming the Gospel. Look at verse 15, 16, and 17. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy uh, to, to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him and he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. I want you to notice two things from these verses. First, notice that Paul is provoked by idolatry. Paul is upset at seeing idolatry. It, it angers him. It, it stirs up a, a righteousness in him that these people are so far from God. And how dare they, they make these forms and fashions and say, this is God. That is not God, Paul knows. And, and it angers him that they would, that they would undermine the, the power of God, the sovereignty of God, the glory of God, by replacing worship of the living and true God with this worship of these idols. His behavior, their sin, provokes Paul. We need to be provoked sometimes. Not that we should fly off the handle and get angry, but we need that sort of holy, righteous angst in us. That, that stirring up, that, that this bothers us, that our culture might be this way, that our culture might be abandoning the living and true God, that there are all sorts of people around us that, that can't be bothered with God, that do not know Him, that, that live their lives based on a philosophy of life that, that denies God, that finds Abortion, acceptable. That finds interfering on, on people's um, personal conscience. Some of the Supreme Court rulings this week that came down where, where now Christian, uh, Christians have to, to do more and more to cater to those practices that we find uh, to be ungodly. It should bother us should bother us the notions of sexuality. Men and women just hooking up at random. And other things in our culture. Notice that Paul is provoked by idolatry. But I want you to notice in the second thing. How does Paul respond? Paul doesn't go off on this tirade. Paul doesn't strut around the city like a madman with a holier-than-thou sort of attitude. Well, we're going to start a church here so that we can show how much better we are than all of these people. Paul is provoked, but he responds by being evangelistic. He responds by, in a sense, saying these people are lost. 
They need God and Jesus Christ and the salvation. How much is that the opposite of the way we respond sometimes today? We get worried about our country. We get worried about the culture. And so when elections come around, we rant and rave that you need to vote for the right person. I'm not saying don't vote. Certainly we should vote. Christians should vote their conscience. We should vote in line with biblical principles. But I'm also saying that voting is not the solution. It's at best a stopgap measure. We need, if we are angered by the way our, our country is going, if it is a holy and godly kind of righteous anger, we need to be compassionate evangelists. Compassionate in the sense that we see the lostness of the lost. That we know that in our sins we were just as lost. And, and the same grace that we have experienced, which is by grace, not by who we are or what we've done, is the same grace that that lost sinner needs to hear because God is saving a people unto Himself. And by definition, the people that are getting saved are coming from darkness into light. Paul is motivated not to start a political party, not to start a riot, not to be, create a group called uh, you know, the Moral Majority for Athens, but he is motivated to be evangelistic. That's where we need to be in our culture. Certainly God calls some people into politics and, and into running for political office, and that's a good thing, and Christians should do those things. We should unite around common principles But at the same time, what will really change the world is not our political acumen, but evangelism. God wants us to evangelize the lost. Notice then that the philosophers were interested in hearing Paul. Look at verses 18, 19, and 20. Some of the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, They took him and and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, uh, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting uh, for you bring some strange things to our ears and wish, therefore, we wish, therefore, to know uh, what this means. The Areopagus is in Athens. It's a it's a rock face. It's sometimes called by the Romans Mars Hill. If you were to stand on this high uh, rock area where they would gather to discuss philosophy, you can look kind of across. It's not even really a valley. You're just kind of looking right over the next hill. And there you'll see the Parthenon. Uh, so if you, you ever go to Greece, you can go to the Areopagus today, just like you can go uh, to the Parthenon. And philosophers gathered here. We are highlighted the Epicureans and the Stoics. Both of these philosophies were very materialistic. They believed in the gods, yes, but they believed that everything, even the gods, were made up of material, particularly atoms. Now, they didn't know about atoms in the modern day sense of of what atoms are made of, but they sort of had this philosophical theory that everything is is built by these atoms. And and Epicureans believe that the world is made basically by by a whole bunch of atoms that are constantly and invisibly falling. 
Uh, if you've ever watched the movie The Matrix and you see the computer screen where all the digital stuff just falls and that's how the, the computer world is designed, they call it The Matrix. That's, it's sort of like that, uh, atoms that are falling. And so random things could happen. They called these things Epicurean swerves, where, where atoms would like bump into each other. And, and so strange and bizarre things for ha- could happen, maybe even what we would call miracles. Uh, but they certainly didn't believe uh, the, in the resurrection and an immaterial uh, creation or an immaterial God who created all things. You had the Stoics who also believed in a materialism. They were very dedicated to reason. Uh, they certainly they believed in Zeus, but they believed Zeus was sort of everywhere uh, and in everything. He was a materialistic God made from stuff, if you will. I think today in our day and age, while, while it is more common to have people who are atheists, it is also very common to have this idea that the world is just made of matter. That nothing else besides what we can see, what we can touch, what is what is physical, even down to the level of atoms and and protons and neutrons and quarks beyond that. It's all just physical. You think of scientists who are also atheists like Richard Dawkins or or Neil deGrasse Tyson. They love to champion reason. And if you are reasonable, you don't believe in the resurrection. And if you are reasonable, you don't believe in God because we can see no evidence of an immaterial world. This is very similar in many ways to the Epicureans and the Stoics. And then Luke kind of rebukes these people. He says in verse 21, Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their, day, their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Something new. He doesn't say that in a good way. It's not like, oh, all the Athenians were ready to get the latest iPod uh, this week, something new. It's, it's, they would debate new ideas. And if it was something new, some new philosophy, wow, that's exciting. That must be better. And then that gets old and a few months later something else comes along. Oh, did you hear what this philosopher said? Let's go after something new. In our culture, Christianity is seen as old. Backwater, something from before the enlightenment. We need new things, new spiritualities. It is very similar to the ancient world. That's why we started this morning by saying the more things change, the more they stay the same. And so I want us to see as we go on, how do we confront those things? How does Paul confront what he faces? How do we confront people that have never really understood or read the scriptures? First, or second this morning, be courageous to tell people that God is sovereign. So, Paul's introduction here appeals to their religious sensibilities. It's, if you will, a a sort of point of contact to start with. Look at how he starts the conversation or or the, the preaching. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What you therefore, what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, Paul is not endorsing this altar. He's not saying let's all gather around 
and worship at this altar because I see you, you know there's a God out there that you don't know. That God is not saying we should worship on this altar. But what he is saying is you shouldn't be surprised when I tell you about a God that you haven't heard of. Because even you yourselves are worried that there's a God you haven't heard of. You know, we might start a conversation with someone who doesn't go to church, who has no church background, and you might observe that that maybe they're into spiritual things. Maybe they believe in a higher power. Maybe even they practice yoga or something uh, like that, and they, they use that as meditation. And you might start a conversation with them. Oh, I see that you're a real spiritual person. You're not endorsing what they're doing. You're not commending them for it. You're just starting off a conversation. You know, I'm spiritual too, but I'm spiritual in a way that that you probably aren't familiar with. Let me tell you about that. We believe in a spiritual, but it's not an an amorphous just floating out there, get in touch with some sort of nebulous non-person. We believe that God is spiritual. We believe that the Holy Spirit is in our heart. But you can start with something that's, that's similar in language to get them to hear the real truth. You're not endorsing what they believe, but you're using it as a lead-in. Notice then that the true God is Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't need human beings. The God who made the world and everything in it, the whole uh, being Lord of heaven and of earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, so this is fundamental for who God is in the Bible. God is not dependent upon anything or anyone. God's name in the Old Testament is the I am who I am. Who is God? He is the I am. Who does God depend upon? No one. Why? Because he just is. You think of how how God comes down in the burning bush and appears to Moses and the bush does not burn up. It's a picture of God not needing creation but being able to reveal himself within creation. So, so the fire may probably represent the glory of God, the, the flaming presence of God. But does that fire need any fuel? No. Does God get hungry? Does God get tired? Does God, in, in his eternal nature, I'm not talking about Jesus when he's on earth, but in his eternal nature, do, does God need fuel? God is not a car engine that needs gas put in him. God is not like the pagan gods that that if they didn't bring him food into these temples, if they didn't build him these houses, they didn't have shelter and they would get hungry. The ancients believed that that humans were created by the gods so that the gods could draw sustenance and sustaining ability and power from them. It almost becomes like a symbiotic relationship that they need each other. God doesn't need you. Let me say that again. God doesn't need you. God delights in having a relationship with you. Don't don't get me wrong. But even in that, God isn't psychologically needy. You ever see the caricature of 
of, of maybe the needy girlfriend or the needy boyfriend, the person that, you know, when they're far away from, from their, their, their special loved one, they're like, I can't live without them. And, and maybe you've been around some of those people and you just kind of roll your eyes and you go, oh, that's so sappy. Oh, you, it's sweet sometimes, but then the other times you're like, Ugh. But what we want to say is God delights in his creatures. God delights in us as his children. But it's not that emotional neediness. God is the self-existent one, the self-contained one. God doesn't need us to build him a church to worship him. Or even more in the old uh, world, a, a temple where if we don't build it, he's got no place to live. I want to be careful how I say this. God doesn't need your tithe check. In the sense that if he doesn't get it, he's going to go broke. Scriptures say God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, don't misunderstand me. We have bills around here to pay and God uses those things. But what I want you to think is don't think that when you worship God, that you're contributing to his being, that you're sustaining him in some way. This is what the Epicureans and the Stoics and many, many philosophers and many pagans throughout the Old Testament and even to this day believe about God. God doesn't need us. We need God. God gives to human beings life and breath and everything. How many of us are the exact opposite, Christian and non-Christian? We think that God needs us. God delights in being in a relationship with us so much so that, that He's lacking something if He doesn't have us. And then we start to think that the things that God has given us, our house, our money, our cars, those are, are my things. And God should just be grateful when I give something to Him. Brothers and sisters, those are God's things that He has given to you. The baby boys that were born, God gave them to Jill and Isaac. And God has breathed life into them and formed them in their mother's womb. Because God has given to all mankind life and breath and everything. All that you have is a gift from God. The scriptures say in Isaiah 66, 1, the Lord, thus saith the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hands has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is whom I will look upon. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to build him a place of rest, to build him a house, to build him a throne. But God delights when people humbly come to him and say, God, I need you. I'm lowly. I'm a nobody. I need you. Two applications. One, and it's what we've already said, God is sovereign over all things. God is likened to a king who sits on a throne and rules over an entire kingdom. And that needs to shape our lives. That's the reason we can trust God. 
That's why we go to Him in good times and in bad. And second, as I've been saying, God doesn't need you. You need God. Let that drive your relationship with Him. You need Him. Let that make you humble and lowly. Oh God, I really do need You. I need You for my daily sustenance. I need You for salvation. If I'm going to even come into Your presence, I need You to do the work through Jesus Christ, through His death and His resurrection. What Paul is doing is what we need to do. He puts God in the proper place and he puts man in the proper place. And in our world, we have reversed those. Most who believe in a God put man and God either on the same level or God is somehow under us at our beck and call or they just get rid of the idea of God. So all we have is man. And man is sort of the apex of creation. And man is so smart, he's figured out that there is no God. Third, this morning, be courageous to tell them that God has made man in his image. So Paul says that God has made man and, and established the nations. And he made from them one man, every nation of mankind. By the way, who's he talking about there? Adam, right? Although maybe you could say Noah because after the flood it was Noah and his descendants. But I I think he's going back to Adam and saying, God created Adam. And everybody comes from him. He's, He's relying on biblical truths to communicate. And so often in our day and age, we think if we're talking to an unbeliever, we we can't use the Bible or biblical truth because they just won't get it. Paul uses some of the language, some of the things that they would be familiar with, but then he brings in the Bible and biblical language. You cannot evangelize people and share the gospel without communicating scripture. It just won't work. Because God is the one who saves sinners, not us. We are so tempted. Paul is standing before philosophers. People that are really, really, really smart. And the temptation would be, and it's in our day and age, that that if we're standing before philosophers or scientists, we, we really ought to come up with some kind of philosophical argument for God. We really ought to come up with some scientific argument for God. What we really ought to do is go back to some kind of scriptural and biblical argument for God. Because that's what Paul does. He says then he's determined and allotted the periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. This is actually biblical language, Deuteronomy 38.2, that the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. He had divided mankind. He fixed the borders of these people according to the number of the sons of God. They're probably speaking to the sons of God, meaning the Israelites. God has made man in his image. He doesn't say those exact words, but look at verse 27 and 28. He clearly gets the idea that he's made them and made the nations. Therefore, in verse 27, that we should that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him that that he is actually not far from each one of us. Acts 28, verse 28. uh, In him, we live and move and have our being, even as some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Job 12.10 says this, In his hand is life, the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. It's 
biblical theology that Paul is getting across, but he actually here quotes two pagans. The phrase, in him we live and move and have our being, is a quote probably from Epimenides, uh, an ancient Greek poet. The other one, for we are indeed his offsprings, is another poem uh, by a a Sicilian uh, named Aratus. And and Paul kind of steals the quote because the full quote says of Zeus, in every way we have all to do with Zeus, for we are truly his offspring. So what is Paul doing here? He's, He's borrowing a line that they would be familiar with without endorsing all of the theology and all of the the so-called teaching of that line. In other words, he's not talking about Zeus. He's talking about the true and living God. But he's kind of, in a way, saying, even your guys recognize that we live and move and have our being in God. But I'm telling you about the true God, the one we really live and move and have our being in. He's not endorsing it. He's, He's kind of like stealing it. Uh, kind of a plundering of the Egyptians, if you will. It's sort of like if I were to talk about Jesus and his incarnation. And then I said something along the lines, like the song says, what if God was one of us? Now, some of you might know that song. If you don't know it, don't worry about it. But what I'm not doing is endorsing the song. I'm not using the theology of the song to teach you something. I'm just drawing a a point of reference that if you're not familiar with Scripture, you go, oh, well, okay, so what you're saying is sort of like that, but in some ways not like that. That's what Paul's doing. It's not like that. He's not talking about Zeus. But it is sort of something that in their concepts they sort of recognized. There's a little bit of overlap, if you will, kind of like a, a wrong clock can be right twice a day. All that theology was wrong, but here's one point where they kind of stole from the real truth that's in the Bible. This is what Paul's doing. Paul speaks in Romans chapter 1 that the invisible attributes of God, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of this world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. What Paul is saying in Romans 1 is what he's communicating here in Acts. That God has made all of the earth. That it should be evident to each and every person that God has made the entire earth because the very heavens declare the glory of God. We see testimony to His invisible attributes, His divine nature, His eternal power in all that God has made. But what we do in our sinfulness, the Scriptures say, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, the truth is all around us. There is a God. We should know that. But the sinner says, I don't want to worship God, the living and true God. And so what we do is we take all that we see around us and we start turning it into idols. They fashion things that look like created things. And they say, this is God. And our foolish hearts are darkened. In our day and age, we we don't maybe fashion idols, but we make things idols. Scientists make reason the most supreme thing. 
scientists will look around in nature and they, they look for the so-called God particle. Not that they believe there is really a God, but they're looking for something that explains all of these things. We make idols. And idols need to be confronted. Paul does that in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. Let me just make one quick application here about how you should share the gospel when you are talking to unbelievers. We need to get people into the storyline of the Bible. The basic layout of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, and then glorification or eternal life. Creation, fall, redemption, eternal life. It's hard to explain to someone what redemption is if they don't understand what sin is. It's hard to explain to someone what sin is if they don't understand that we are created in God's image. If you don't believe in God who gives his law and we are his image bearers who should be living according to his ways, you're not going to believe that sin is anything significant. And you're also not going to believe that we need redemption from something. We need to be in our culture kind of like missionaries who go to the foreign land. Sometimes when missionaries go to a foreign place where there has never been any understanding of Scripture, the first thing they do is not go in and say, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Now, that's the message we need to proclaim. But what they have to do is lay a whole lot of groundwork to that. In some places, they even start out with Genesis and and teach all of those stories that we're so familiar with from Sunday school so that by the time they get to like Leviticus and you see the Lamb of Atonement and all those things, then they can get to the cross of Christ to say, Jesus is the Lamb of God. But when we are dealing with a culture that is farther and farther from God in its understanding, we're going to have to work harder and harder to communicate a larger picture of the Scriptures. The last thing that Paul talks about is the resurrection. I want you to notice verse 31. Because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul drives it home. He says, look, there is a judgment coming. And your sin and my sin will be judged. Now, Luke doesn't record all that Paul says. We, we have to assume that Paul talks about the cross of Christ at some point. But here he highlights the judgment. And he says this judgment is coming. And we know it because Jesus Christ was resurrected. You see, Jesus Christ passed through the judgment for you and I. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And the reason we know he passed that judgment The reason we know that the judgment was fulfilled in Christ is because God raised him from the dead. The scriptures say it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And in the same way, Jesus Christ in humanity died, was judged for our sins in his death, 
And God saw his sacrifice and was satisfied. So that when you and I believe on Jesus, we are believing in the one who died and rose again. And Jesus Christ has ascended to the right hand of his father. God has raised him up in righteousness. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, that righteousness that Jesus had is declared to be upon you. It's called justification. And it's through faith alone, by receiving Jesus and putting our trust in Him. Paul says the judgment is coming because Jesus Christ was raised up after He was judged for our sin. Paul says we know it's coming because the proof is the resurrection. And in the resurrection and after the resurrection, God says in fulfillment of Psalm 2, I have set my King on Zion. And I will make the nations your inheritance. Jesus will judge the nations, heaven and earth. And the resurrection shows this to us. The resurrection is proof to you and I that he will judge. It's interesting, Paul doesn't give proof for how we know the resurrection happened. He testifies to it. He says, it happened. We have seen him. Paul says the resurrection is the proof. The judgment is coming. We know it. God raised Jesus from the dead. This is what we need to share with people. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And do not be afraid in a culture that is hostile to God, that is hostile to the idea of a resurrection. In fact, they laugh at Paul. They didn't believe in resurrections any more than the average person today believes in a literal bodily resurrection. Paul had courage. One last thing. This this always is so fascinating and exciting to me. So the Greeks had this tradition, according to the work of Eumenides, they had this tradition that Apollo, the god, had stood at the Areopagus at one point And guess what Apollo said to them, according to this tradition? Apollo said, once a man has died and the dust has soaked up his blood, there is no resurrection. Paul stands in the exact same place in the Areopagus and says straight to their faces, there is a resurrection. Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. That takes courage. That takes the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we just ask that you would touch our hearts today as we celebrate communion now. We are thinking about the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, particularly proclaiming his death until he comes, that his body was broken for us, that his blood Uh, was shed for us. Oh, Lord God, there is no salvation without the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we come to you by faith this morning and remind ourselves of the blessings that flow to us from Jesus Christ. And in the Lord Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take a minute and we're going to celebrate communion. I'm going to ask uh, the guys to come up. Jason's going to come, and while we're passing out the elements, he'll just be playing softly a little bit. But we encourage you to 
to take the time and, and pray. The communion table is for anyone that knows the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that has professed faith in Jesus Christ and received the forgiveness of sins. If you have not done that, you have two choices today. Either one, please don't take communion because we don't want to make a mockery of the symbols of the death and resurrection of Christ. Or two, and the one that I would much prefer you to do, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive the forgiveness of sins. Say to him, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I have not believed in the sovereignty of God. I I have been made in your image, but I have disobeyed you in so many ways. I've failed to trust in you. I've sinned. Maybe I've fallen into some kind of immorality of some kind. Forgive me of my sins and cleanse me by what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus Christ was perfectly innocent and holy and pure. And the Lord was pleased to crush him on a cross so that the Lord could pour out the judgment that he had for our sins onto Jesus who was standing in our place. The scriptures say in Isaiah 53 that the Lord shall see it and be satisfied. The Lord was satisfied with that sacrifice. It perfectly pays for our sins if we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood and body of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't stay dead. He showed that He conquered death, that great punishment for sin, by being raised from the dead by His Father and ascending into heaven. You have two choices in this life. You can either believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins and that sin has then been judged on the cross of Christ. Or you can wait for the judgment day and you and I will have to stand before God and answer for our sins if Christ's blood hasn't covered them. Receive it by faith and Christ's blood covers your sins. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we pass out these elements, let us reflect on who you are. Let us confess again our sins to you, that we are a sinful people. Let us receive that forgiveness of sins through faith, being reminded of that faith we place in you, even as we take in these elements, these symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Let us look to heaven where you are, and have our faith in you renewed again. Give us joy and thanksgiving as we celebrate the death, the shed blood, and the broken body of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we're passing these out, just hold on to it. We'll take it together and just spend this time in quiet prayer and and reflection before God.
the scriptures say in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance for me. Let's give thanks one more time. Our Lord Jesus, we just want to give you thanks for your broken body that was broken on the cross for us to pay the penalty for our sins. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Take and eat. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray again. O Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cup of your blood and that blood that was poured out on the cross as you bore the cup of God's wrath for our sins to accomplish our salvations. We thank you in your name. Amen. Take and drink.
stand with us one last time.